Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We come before you asking that um, by your spirit may our minds be focused upon your word. I pray, Lord, that as we examine this text, um, that you would help us to hear your voice. I pray that our hearts would be softened. I ask that you would help us to to make sense of it. Um, we're removed some 2,000 years in time. We are cultures away um, from the people that this letter was in originally intended to. But it's your word that is holy and living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and, and it speaks to us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we study this text that you would, um, Lord, help me as I teach, help all of us as we listen to you, that we would see the heart of this passage that transcends time and culture and situations, that we would draw out the principles that you desire us to see. Lord, ultimately, Hebrews calls us to see Jesus clearly. And so, Father, I pray that our lens of our hearts would focus, that we would come into greater understanding of who Christ is. Father, I pray that you would grow our hearts towards you. Help us to get a glimpse of how mighty and how awesome you are, that we would worship you out of that. And so we love you, Lord. We um, acknowledge our time is short today, and so we uh, need you to, to help us and guide us through this passage. It's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, just by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was, was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day 
as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with them and with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you, Lord, that you would help us now. It's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. This has been one of those chapters. I, um, you guys ever seen one of those paintings? Or, or they're more like computer-generated pictures. I don't see them that much anymore, but they're, they're kind of like a blurry blob. And in theory, you're supposed to be able to stare at them. Maybe if you turn your head or you cross your eyes, which I'm not going to do because that will mess me up. Um, but somehow, way, you're supposed to focus but not focus. And somewhere, somehow, the picture is supposed to transform to like this three-dimensional wonder that you can... I think I've accomplished it like two times in my whole life. Normally, I grow so frustrated with the thing, and these people are on drugs when they're doing these things, and I, you know, it's not, it doesn't work. This passage has caused me so much. Uh, I'm not sure what the word is. Um, this has been one of those weeks as I dig and I dig and I dig and I realize that I'm going to fall short. I'm, I, I, I'm limited in what I can accomplish with this passage, not only because of me, but because of you. Y'all, me included, all of us. See, we're not Jewish. We're American or Mexican or whatever your original nationality is. Our framework, is, or Romanian, how can I not say Romanian? Like in the midst of a Romanian, like, come on. Um, So, so our whole framework, our our like mother language for 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 me as like an American, who I go to a sporting event and and the national anthem plays and I'm standing there at attention with tears pouring off my face. That's that's not something you can teach. I can't go into another country and suddenly develop that that welling like emotion that was instilled in me and my nation from when I was like from the day I was born to like growing up. This passage, this book was written to Jewish people, Hebrews. It's hard for us. We didn't grow up studying the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, or maybe if you're raised in a Christian home, you did. But even if you did, you you didn't, you weren't instilled with this reverence for Moses. You weren't instilled 
with this reverence and love for the law of God and all of the traditions that were bound up within it. And from your culture, your heritage, your people, your, your history that's longer than any human history on this planet, fr- from within your tribe, the Messiah came. And so I, here I am with this fuzzy picture trying to make it come clear to you so that you could understand what this author is saying. This, this week, I came to Joel, and Joel just started laughing at me. I think he's laughing at me out of uh, a kinship now that he's been sharing from the pulpit more and more. He, he understands my pain. This is one of those weekends or weeks where Thursday I have like five pages of notes. I'm like, this isn't going to do it. Highlight the whole thing, delete, let's start over. Then I redid it like three or four times. Then finally yesterday morning I sit down and I get a couple pages of garbage. I'm like, this isn't going to work. I'm like, I'm just going to like, I got the text. I got the Holy Spirit. I've done my homework and we're just going to let it rip. And we're going to see what happens. Then, but no, I, there's more. <laughs> but I appreciate that. I Yes, and it's partway true. Last night, I find out the guest is, or the guest Chris is going to be here today. I was like, hey, brother, you want to preach? He's like, no. I'm like, okay, well, I'm on. We'll see what happens. And then this morning, I wake up at like 4.30. I delete those notes again, and I start over this morning. I think I have it. But I don't have the time that I need to make sense of this. But I'm going I'm, I'm to do my best. So we come to verse 1 of chapter 3, and we have this word, therefore. We can't let the chapters and verses get in our ways. We can't, we can't they're a helpful tool, but they, they can be distracting at times because they're not, they're not inspired. It was a Frenchman who gave us them in the 1500s, and I'm so grateful for that. But it's easy for us to disconnect one thought from the other thought. And so here we have this therefore. This therefore is a, is a word that lets us know. It's, it's, a, it's a flag word in, in sort of language that lets us know that what's about to be said is built upon either what's immediately before it or the whole thing before it. And so to sort of get our minds our Jewish thinking caps on. As a reminder, the, remember, this, this letter is written to Jewish people. We believe that it was written in about A.D. 65 to 68, which is critical because the temple hadn't been destroyed yet. So the temple is going. They are, there's, the priestly line is still functioning. They're bringing animals to be sacrificed for their sins, for the sins of the people. Synagogues are up and running. This letter is written to a Jewish population who had come to faith in the Messiah, but now they're being pulled back to Judaism. Their families, they're struggling with their understanding of the Messiah, and the author of this book is correcting them, but gently pulling them back, making a case. Hebrews opens up, Hebrews 1, chapter, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken 
to us in his son for clarity's sake. Those first four verses in the Greek are one long sentence and there's one verb, spoke, God. That God spoke. In the past, he spoke in a variety of different ways through a variety of different means from, from dreams, from prophets, through uh, faithful guys like Moses who penned the scriptures um, through a donkey. But the author says, but now God is speaking through his son. And from there, he builds the case about the son. First two chapters, all about showing that Jesus is greater than angels. We're reminded that the Jewish people esteemed angels because it was their understanding, as we see in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, for the words spoken through angels proved unalterable. So they understood that the scriptures were given to them from God, that God used an angel or angels, then gave the message to Moses, and then Moses passed it along. And so for them, angels were very, very, very high in the food chain. And so Hebrews chapter 1 deals with the divinity of Jesus and how he is far greater than the angels. As a Jewish man or woman, there's some theories that this could have been one of the females in the early church, possible, we don't know. So whoever wrote this, then from the Jewish mind, in chapter 2, they're going to deal with the issue, well, if the Messiah in his divinity, that's okay, but this person that you're talking about is Jesus who came to earth and was a man. So how can a man be greater than angels? Because we know that angels are higher than men. And sort of the spiritual pecking order of things. And so then all of chapter 2, the author is showing that Jesus in his incarnation, as uh, the, the theological term, the hypostatic union of Christ, meaning fully God, fully man, that as he was on earth, as he came, as he lived the perfect life, as he went to the cross and was crucified, as he was buried, and then he rose, he shows that in his humanity, he's far greater than the angels, that his Humanity didn't make him less than the angels. It actually made him greater than the angels. For the most beautiful verse, I don't know how I missed it all of these years, but chapter 2, verse 15. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And he says that Jesus becoming man and coming to earth, what he did was he freed all of us who are in subjection to slavery. All of humanity has been in subjection to slavery of the fear of death because we were not created to face death. But when sin entered the world, death came, and then we've been in bondage to it. But by his work on the cross, we've been set free from the slavery, this fear of death. It's beautiful. Then he goes on and he begins to say, well, we don't have... Uh, We have a high priest that's merciful and faithful, that Jesus is above all. He begins to introduce new subjects to us, that he's been tempted in all things as we are, yet he's without sin. And so we can go to him and he can understand and he gets what you're going through and he's there for you. And here are these people, he's, he's fighting for them because they've drifted from this great truth. 
Chapter 2, verse 1, the first warning for this reason, we must pay closer attention to that which we have heard so we do not drift away from it. We're drifters. There's a propensity to drift back. I didn't come from a religious home. I came from a, a worldly place. But I tell you, in my Christian life, there's this, there's this draw to go back. Sometimes for them, the religiousness to, to go back, to depart from grace, to depart from grace. So he's making this case that Jesus is greater, don't drift. And so that's therefore verse 1. A lot of time has been given to one word in our passage. I'm in trouble. Therefore, holy brethren, huge word. Brethren, holy, set apart back in chapter 2, verse 11, I think it was. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Powerful. The, the, the idea that the Creator became human, he went to the cross, he died for us, he washed us in his blood so that we might become his righteousness. And because of what he accomplished, we now are brothers with him, sharing a father. And so this word brethren isn't used lightly. We were just in, introduced to the magnitude of it. So now he says, therefore, in light of this, holy brethren, set apart brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. Wow. That you were in death, now you're in life. Now you're participants in this great mission of God this heavenly calling. This is one reason why I love our connection to the missionaries. We're a small little town. We're a small little country church. But, but there's something important about looking beyond ourselves, being connected to those who serve around the world, having r real relationships, sending people from our church. And I want to send you to go visit it would be great if we could send a team of two to three people every year to every single one of our missionaries. I would, that's my prayer. Right now, we're like maybe one missionary a year or two. But so Melanie and Deborah are there encouraging Ben and Beth and Bradley. They're going to come back. We all participated with them. They're going to be like, man, God's doing great things in Japan. Like, God is a big God. Think of this Spanish children's song, Dios es tan grande. I'm not going to, I'm going to want to sing a whole bunch today, but I'm going to spare you. God is so big. He's so great. He's so strong. I think we sing it in English, but I know it in Spanish. Moving along here. We are partakers in this great heavenly calling. Consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. This isn't just a lightly consider him. This, this, this is the idea of, of pondering, thinking deeply, um, Today, there's been discussion of technology, which I'll talk about a little bit longer, but I heard or read or watched on TV or something uh, about the early days of, of uh, Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft. And I think he was working in his garage or he's working somewhere. He's pondering this great idea of a computer. And he, he was so consumed with thinking about how to take his thought and to, to make it into reality that he would go days and weeks forgetting basic hygiene. And if my memory is correct, there's a story like where he's supposed to meet with some people like investors or something. 
And his secretary's like, Bill, Bill, stop. You can't go to this meeting. You, you got to like go brush your teeth and shower. It's been weeks. And he's like, oh, I just, like, how did that happen? I was so, and so he'd you know, go shower and do his stuff. But, but this is the idea to be so consumed with Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest, the only word or the only time that Jesus is identified as an apostle. I think the idea is from John 20, 21, after the resurrection, when Jesus comes and he looks at the apostles and he says, as the father has sent me, so send I you, go. And he breathes the spirit on them and they go. That he was sent on mission. He's this high priest, which we're going to get into, of our confession that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried and he rose from the dead, the gospel. This is the confession. So continuing on Jesus, he said he was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in his house. So here we have to pause. Moses is introduced. As he speaks about Jesus, he now introduces this theme uh, about Moses. And for, for those of us, we don't eat, dream, think, everything Moses and, and so this week, I've been forced to sort of go back to that story. And, and, and what's the deal with Moses? So as you go through the pages of Genesis, we stumble across this man, Joseph, who was, uh, uh, had many brothers. I don't want to go into the musical. But remember, he had 11 brothers, and his dad gives him a coat of many colors. They were red, and <laughs> we're not going to see it. <laughs> oh, but it gets stuck in your head, that musical. And so his brothers got jealous of him, and it was foolish of the dad to separate this one brother from all of the other ones. But the brothers get mad. They throw him in a pit. They uh, cover his coat in blood, and they tell the dad a story. Joseph is sent away into slavery into Egypt. While down there, sort of fast-forwarding through the story, he has this ability to interpret dreams. And while he's in jail, there's word that the Pharaoh, which is a title, has has this dream that scares them, or two of them, and Joseph interprets them and says, hey, this famine's coming. So Joseph sort of rises to power over the course of time, and because of his interpretation of this dream, they stockpile food, they prepare for these seven years. Story goes back up to Israel, which is actually the brother, like this, Israel is his family. They're now starving and they get word that there's food down in Egypt. And so they figure out a way that they can go down there and, and basically beg and plead for food. They go down there, fast forwarding through the story. Joseph re- hides himself, but then he reveals himself and says, hey, I'm your brother. What you guys intended for evil, God intended for good. I have food. Go get dad. Come back and, and I'll take care of you. The family flourishes under Joseph. Um, uh, that Pharaoh dies, another Pharaoh comes. The people of Israel have now expanded exponentially. So now the Hebrew people have grown in Egypt. This new Pharaoh is terrified of these people. And so he comes up with a plan. The Egyptians, they were the midwives, or before that, they because of his fear, he moved him into slavery and bondage to him, that they were slaves but they were still growing and his fear continued to grow. So the, the Egyptian women who served as midwives, he says, what you need to do is when the women are having children, if it's a boy, kill the baby boy. That way over time, it'll only be women. We will be able to outpower them. They won't be able to do anything. The problem is, is if you ask people who are into midwifery, if that's the right way to say it, they like babies. 
So what midwife likes to kill babies that they're delivering? And so they have a problem there. So the midwives, the babies are born, they're helping them. They go back to Pharaoh and say, man, these Hebrew women, they're like amazing. Like we show up and it's like everything's happened and I, we built low. <laughs> so then he recruits other people to say, you need to slaughter the, the baby boys. And so during the process of slaughtering the baby boys, a Jewish woman has a baby named Moses. Moses is placed in a basket, put into the river, and there's an Egyptian woman who's connected to the Pharaoh who pulls this baby out of the water, which is the meaning of Moses, I believe. Says, I want this baby. So she has the connections to keep the baby, but she's got a problem because Gerber didn't exist back then. There was no formula. And so she finds a woman that happens to be nursing that happens to be Moses's mother. And says, how about you care for this baby under my protection? And then when he's old enough, give him to me. So Moses is raised by Egyptians. The Egyptians were brilliant individuals. They had libraries and libraries and libraries. So Moses studied and was educated, not as a slave, <clears throat> but as a wealthy man. I got to speed up the story. But there's so much here that we need to sort of grapple with. Um, story moves along. They're still in slavery. Moses is living as an Egyptian. He knows he's a Jew. The Jews don't necessarily know that he's a Jew. He sees two Egyptian guys beating up on a Jewish guy. He kills the two Egyptians. He flees. As he flees, he encounters this bush that's on fire but is not burning. He encounters God. God says, I'm going to use you to basically lead the people out of slavery. He goes back. There's the plagues and all of the stuff. Finally, the Passover happens, the great Passover that the Jews still celebrate today. Finally, Pharaoh says, I'm sick of you guys. Just take your people and get out of here. So the people go. God parts the Red Sea. About this time, Pharaoh has a change of heart. He sends his army to go kill the people of Israel. But as the people of Israel get through the Red Sea and the chariots follow up, God closes the water on them and they're all killed. There's powerful things that the people of Israel saw. Then as they get through the Red Sea, Moses is given the law. God writes on tablets the law that we know, the Pentateuch. He comes down from the hill. There they are. There's a golden calf. They've gone astray. Moses gets mad. He slams down the, the tablets. They shatter. God deals with it. He makes people drink it. That's a funny story, but that's a whole other story. Like, then God basically makes Moses write out again everything the second time. God is now angry with the grumbling of the people of Israel. They wander through the desert for 40 years. Something that should have taken them a couple of weeks, but they wander. They deal with God's punishment. Near the end of Moses' life, as they get closer to the land, they send out 12 spies. Ten of them said, it's a great land, but there's like giants there. There's no way we can take it. But throughout this time, the people are grumbling. Can't we just go back under slavery? Like at least there we had a house and we had good food and like fine culture. After seeing everything that God had done. And so these 10 spies come back and they say, no, but there's two. Joshua and Caleb, they say, God has given us this land. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's beautiful. We can take it. Let's go. And they were the only two that were allowed to enter into the land or the generation that, that, that was born in the wilderness was allowed to go with them. And the rest of everybody else, they died in the wilderness as punishment. 
And so when we come to Moses here, I can speed along with the backdrop. They revered that generation. They revered Moses. He was the greatest man ever. And we can make a case today that, that Moses was a great man. God used him in a mighty way. The, like like our, our government, any first world country, any individual that has a sense of right or wrong, like it was given through the law that Moses recorded and passed on that our nation has been affected by this man and how God used him through the law that he gave. And so in these first six verses, to give you sort of an outline of chapter three, there's verses one through six. Jesus is contrasted with Moses. Ultimately, Jesus is going to be said that he's greater than Moses. Then in verses seven through 11, he's going to quote from an Old Testament psalm. And then verses 12 through 19, the author is going to interpret or comment on that psalm. And so in chapter, here we are, verse 2. Jesus was faithful to the Father who appointed him, Jesus, just as Moses also was in his house. For he had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. There it is, worthy of more glory than Moses. Not once has Moses talked bad about in these six verses. Nothing is said poorly about Moses. Moses is a faithful servant. By just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. So you build a house. The house can be beautiful. It can be whatever. Going with the technology theme. This morning, I don't even know how it came up, but we're in the lobby and Rick Recivo pulls out his phone. I pull out my phone. He has a Microsoft-driven phone. I have an Apple. We won't get into that debate here. Um, but we, we're both, Rick's like, what we have in our hands is more powerful than what they launched the space shuttle with. Like, it's crazy. And we're sitting there talking about how powerful these, these modern-day phones are. But the reality is, is when you go back and you look at Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, they have more honors because it was like out of their brains hatched this idea, which is, how? I don't even, how? And so this is what he's saying. He um, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. What he's saying is that Jesus is the creator of the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. God has created everything. Uh, with this theme of the phones, who created Bill Gates and Steve Jobs? God did. Who gave them the capacity to think like that? God did. And he's saying, verse 5, Now Moses was, was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken of later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confession and the boast of our hope until the end. Okay, there's so much that could be said here. I don't have time to say everything here. But in this comparing and contrasting, Jesus is the creator. He's far greater than Moses ever was or could be. Moses was a servant. He was a man. He struggled with sin. He was a faithful servant. God used him. He did great things for the nation of Israel, but he fell short. Jesus is the creator. He is greater than Moses. While not speaking poorly of Moses, he's continuing his case, showing that even in their writings, they acknowledged the shortcoming of Moses and that whole generation. And so we come to verse 7. And verse 7 through 11 is a quote of Psalm 95. 
We think, oh, I know the Psalms, they're great, they're wonderful. Psalm 95 might not mean anything to you, but to a Jewish individual, it meant everything. It was something that was read every single Sabbath, every single day, every single Sabbath, every time they went to the temple, they started with Psalm 75. A couple years ago, we went to go visit my brother-in-law in um, in Oregon, and I missed a church Sunday here, and I went to church with my brother-in-law, and my brother-in-law is way, he's just really into like more of a liturgical setting church. I, I don't understand it. It's not my, like, I can't, I have a hard time. And so they go through everything, and at the very end of the service, I guess every Sunday, they sing the doxology. You know, praise God from whom all blessings flow. <laughs> that's that's kind of how I kind of live. It's great. There's nothing wrong with it. But they sing it every single Sunday at the end. And so we stand up. And I did just what I did. And then I, and then they got the words up and I was able to continue. And I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 that's that part. At the very end of it, my little niece, Elena, looks back at us. She says, Ellie doesn't know the doxology. And it's like, honey, we don't sing it every week. And she's like, how could she not know the doxology? We don't know Psalm 95. (laughs) They knew it. And so as soon as he quoted this, their minds, they could say the whole thing. Turn with me over to Psalm 95. It's a beautiful psalm. You could almost convince me to go liturgical, to open worship, to have to put it on Don, to have Don read this every Sunday before he begins. And as soon as I find Psalms in my Bible, going the wrong way, Psalm 95. This is a beautiful, beautiful Psalm. They would have known it all. Psalm 95, verse 1. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also, the sea is his, for it was he who who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. This is just like a call to worship. You start going in on a Sabbath to church. You're still groggy. Your coffee hasn't kicked in yet. All of a sudden, this is it. It's like, no, we're here. The greatest God, the creator of all things, he is worthy of our praise. He created all things. He's the rock of our salvation. We should give thanks to him. Man, it gets your spiritual juices flowing. You're ready to rock and roll. Like, let's worship now. And that's if we stop there. But that's not what the author of Hebrews quotes. So in this great call, let's go, let's focus on God. This is what's quoted. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, he's talking about Moses in that generation. When your fathers tested me, they tried me. Though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation. 
and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. Whoa. Talk about from going to this to like, oh Lord, humbly falling before him. Lord, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Lord, help me not to drift from who you are. Suddenly Moses, who's not spoken poorly of at all, suddenly this psalm, verse 7 through 11, he says, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, this is the word of the Lord. Listen what the word of the Lord says about Moses. Well, he didn't say anything poorly about Moses. He now quotes from the psalm that they had every single week. And he quotes from the, the, the part of warning. Do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. They didn't enter the rest. They didn't enter the land. This is, this is powerful. Now verses 12 through 18, he's going to unpack this. He's going to explain this. And it reminds me, this morning it came to me, I, I, um, I remember um, back in my Navy days, we were down in Australia. I'd always wanted to go to Australia. I'd heard great thing about, things about the Australian people, that they were a lot of fun. And so we signed up, our, like about, I don't know, seven of us um, from our team, we signed up for this uh, this whitewater rafting expedition. And uh, so we, we're in the northeast part of Australia. It's like they're like rainforest, beautiful rivers, and, and it's a bunch of tourists. And we happened to find the one boat that had this cute Australian girl. Somehow we all ended up in that boat. And, and uh, so she's like, well, what do you guys do? We're like, oh, we're just Americans here on vacation. We're like businessmen or something. Like we didn't really like to play our cards. And so she said, okay, well, we're going to have a great day today. I need you guys to be uh, safe. This is, a, this is a paddle. This is the side you paddle with. She's giving us instructions. So we're going through the whole lesson. And we're saying, oh, well, that makes, okay, so you, and just everybody on their own. No, 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 no you want to stay together. And so she's, give, she's really being patient with us. And we're asking all these stupid questions that we know are stupid questions. And so we start, and we start paddling. It's really slow the first few miles. And then she's like, you know, guys, I, I really... What we need to do is we have some like class four and five rapids coming up. And so when we get there, I need you guys to pull the boat over to the side. And, and, and we're like, okay. Well, when we get there, what do we do? <laughs> Full speed ahead. Like we go through this and she's screaming at us. You guys are going to get us killed. We get to the end. She's like, you guys are not businessmen. You tell me right now who you are. And we're like, actually, we're Navy SEALs. And we're like, that was a lot of fun. She's like, y- y- you guys had me. And so we start talking. We opened her up through that, you know. And she's, she's like, you know, like we Australians, we, um, we have a bunch of nicknames for you guys. Like, uh, you know, I forget what she said, like Yankees and stuff that they kind of use in a derogatory way towards us. And she looks at us. She's like, do you guys say anything? Like, do you have nicknames for us? Most of us were like, no, like we you guys make fun of us? We like you guys. And then my one buddy in the back, who's a guy who doesn't speak much, but when he speaks, it's going to be hilarious. He says, no, we don't say much about you guys. But Well, other than you're all a bunch of descendants from convicts, murderers, and he listed a whole bunch of criminal type stuff, and the world basically excommunicated you and sent you to the farthest island. 
But other than that, we don't say anything mean about you guys. And we like just fell out of the boat. Like, oh, I can't believe he just said that. This is kind of like what's happening here. They all looked up to Moses. The author's being very careful in the first six verses to, 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 to esteem Moses. But then he quotes from this Psalm 95 that they read every single week. The first part was great. The second part was a scolding of that generation saying, don't be like that generation. He writes it, and then in verse 12, we get some exhortation. He says, take care. This is the same word found in verse 19 that's translated. Uh, so we see that. So you could say, take care, keep a close eye, watch out, be cautious. Brethren, that word again, that there would not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. We see heart for the third time. Verse 8, verse 10, verse 12, verse 15 again. The condition of the heart, the condition of your heart is critical before God. He says, take care, brethren, that there not be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Don't fall away from the living God. It starts in your heart. You stop listening. Then, as you stop hearing the word of God, then your heart becomes hardened. And as as I've been thinking about verse 12, one of my struggles is, like, how do we address this? Because it's it, this really isn't something as a pastor that it's saying to, to, to me, soften your hearts. It's saying to each of us individually, including myself, that, that we need to take care. That I need it. Gunner needs to take care that my heart doesn't get hardened. And then I start thinking, like, well, what, what things hardened my heart? Well, well, people hardened my heart. I'm just honest with all of you. It's like people, like at times. I'm not saying it's 100%. But, but, but there's, like, I don't think I ever anticipated the sorrow, the sadness as a pastor of seeing people who are, like, on fire to drift. To, to open the paper and to see, oh, there's another terrorist bombing, that something happened. It's like, what, what is going on? Like, I think of those in law enforcement that, that, that have a, a callousness that, is easy and understandable to develop over time. But there's a call to each one of us to take care, to examine, to cultivate spiritually your heart, to listen to Johnny Cash, who wrote or saying, I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. That we need to get our hearts in alignment. I mentioned my, my car that was out of alignment and I finally took it to the shop and they did the alignment and the guy called and said, okay, your car's alignment's fixed and, and he said the price and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not trying to be difficult but I'm a curious person. I will never do alignment on a car. I, I, I don't need to know this information but there's something within me that I just have to know. And I'm kind of thinking, like, up to this point, I was sort of thinking that he'd tell me, he's like, oh, yeah, we put it on this machine, and it, like, it went left, just like he told. And I, I thought there'd be a little spot to stick the screwdriver, and he'd just turn it to the right a little bit. 
Like, oh yeah, we just turned the screwdriver about a half a click that way, and now your car, instead of going this way, it's here. And he's like, no, there's like three parts. And he said these three words, and I'm like, what were those words? Made him say them again, and I still don't know the words. But Castor, Camber, and he knows there's another one, and all of them he starts saying, and he's like, he spits out the piece of paper and all of this stuff. And I'm looking at it, and, and I'm like, this is my problem for this week. Is all of your hearts have all of these different parts, and I don't know how to adjust your heart. You got to figure out how to get your heart in alignment with God, because I can't see into your heart. I don't know what's steering you astray. You need to come before Him, say, Lord, like here's my heart. It's exposed to you. Shine light. Show me the sin in my life. Show me where I'm off. And and that's why being in the Word of God is so important because it's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and it's going to cut us and it's going to shape us and it's going to steer us where we need to go he he goes on to say verse 13 which does apply to all of us for others and for ourselves but encourage one another day after day as long it is still as long as it's still called today so that none of you will be hardened there's that word again by the deceitfulness of sin for we have become partakers of christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end he says you're now partakers in christ You're in community. You're in covenant community. This is so difficult for us in our culture where we like to to fly in and fly out and not really sort of get connected in in relationship with one another. We, We live in a church age where people like to pop into church and pop out and not to let anybody really get connected. And so when I read this, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So there's this command. Like I have this obligation to speak into your life. You have this obligation to speak into my life. You have the obligation to speak into the life of the person sitting next to you as fellow partakers of this calling. And this is really uncomfortable for us in our culture. It's two ways. Because in the problem that I see that I struggle with is because the person that's got the heart and heart, they're doing this and this. <laughs> and so there's something that's of importance to be here. And worse, this is like, I'm getting ahead of myself. The deceitfulness of sin. It, 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 it's so attractive. We forget where we came from and we wander. And as a pastor, this is like, I, like I struggle. I struggle with this. And I always think of the verse. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience. That great patience is always in boldness because God had to deal with their grumbling. As a pastor, you deal with people's grumbling. I get to hear why everybody's unhappy about everything. And I'm not, you guys are all great. I love you all. And you guys, I really, I'm not grumbling. (laughs) Like, I'm not. But like, as an introvert guy that was in the military that didn't have to deal with people so much, as an introvert pastor that has to really take in a lot. And it's so easy, like, uh, being sensitive to people's, like, criticisms and complaints and, you know, to take it in, spit out the bones, eat the meat. And, like, it can wear on you. And I think that God was getting worn out by this generation. So, so, so I think that like first we start with we have to examine our hearts. What things, what sins are drawing us in? 
but then as followers of Christ, we want to be in community, or maybe we don't want to be in community, but we're commanded to be in community with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and for me, that being in community means that I'm subjected to you, and I'm thinking, like, this is just, like, let's just gunner in church, like, not up here. Like, it's very easy to get mistake what happens up here. Like, Gunner goes to church because he's a Christian. Gunner is committed to fellowshipping with a local body because I'm a Christian, not because I'm a pastor. And so we're in this together, which means that if I'm going off course, somebody says, hey, Gunner, you did this. And I, and I don't mind. Gunner, you said this. And it's like, oh, man, when I said that, I did. Like, when it came out of my mouth, it was wrong. But I didn't have time to circle around. I was just banking that nobody would hear it. <laughs> and it, it, There's accountability. This is important. I'm probably spending way too much time on this. Are my notes of any value at this point? Okay, command number one in this passage. Verse one, consider Jesus. Command two, take care of your heart. Don't be led away by sin. Don't let your heart be hardened. Command number three, that we as community were accountable to one another that there is something to be said, that we have this command from God, not legalistically, not like we're cops writing tickets to people, no offense to any police officers, but, but, but we're, we're held accountable. And love says, I see you doing this. Can I help you? Can I be there for you? But, but in order to have that relationship means that there's a relationship. You can't really do that without a relationship. Then we get to the part where I really was supposed to share my Australia story. So remember that Australia story. And he brings it home. He ties it in the whole chapter together through Moses. And he says, while it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. So the question is, is who's this they? And the, re- the writer is hoping that you're asking that question. Do not harden your hearts as when they. Who's the they? Who are we talking about? He's going to ask a series of questions, and he's going to answer his own questions. So question number one, for who provoked him, that's God, when they had heard? The answer, indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? This great generation, this great leader, who, who, who is this? It was that generation that we esteem. There's angels, now there's Moses. Angels gave the message to Moses. Now he's going after Moses. The generation, that whole generation that Moses led out of Egypt, that whole generation provoked God. Question number two, verse 17. And with whom was he, that's God, angry for 40 years? God was angry at somebody for 40 years. Who was that? Oh, remember, Israel wandering through the desert. Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Question number three is a question and an answer sort of combined all in one. And to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest, speaking of the land, but to those who are disobedient? He has them. He's talking about Moses. They're all with him. Then he quotes from Psalm 95, and suddenly there's this rut row. I see where he's going with this, and he's got biblical grounds. And 
And he says, listen, this generation, they rebelled against God. They hardened their hearts. They never entered the rest that was offered to them because of why. Verse 19, so we see that they were not entered to, able to enter because of unbelief. So as we end, there's this warning towards unbelief. God has spoken to us in his son. Chapter 2, verse 1, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift from it. We drift when we disconnect ourselves from the word of God. We drift when we disconnect ourselves from fellowship. We need to consider Jesus. How do we cultivate our hearts? First, we need to consider Jesus. If you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior, if you haven't examined who he is in light of who you are, like that's point number one. You need to consider Jesus. The, the troubling part about this whole letter of Hebrews is that it was written to those who did consider Jesus, who received him as their Savior, and now they're drifting from him. And so he says that we need to take care of our heart. I don't know what things are in your heart that are weeds that are ruining your garden, are ruining the soil. Maybe you're not watering your heart. Maybe there's things that you need to rip out of there and deal with. There seems to be something in this that reminds me of the saying, it's, it's, there's one sun, and that, that one sun, it'll harden clay and it'll melt butter. And there's something about dealing with God like that it can either make our hearts heart or it can soften our hearts. And what the author wants is he wants our, our hearts to be like melting butter before God. So there's something that we do within ourselves to expose the sin in our hearts so that we grow closer to Christ. They were, were told to encourage one another. And the step is sort of... Subjecting yourself to, to, to community, to, to, to one anotherness. It's, it's why we built this patio with the umbrellas and tables to, to foster lingering. Like there's something beautiful about lingering. What I, what I mean is, is I've already confessed I'm an introvert. And so like, like since this stinking patio came, I show up at 640 and there's like people out there hanging out already. I'm like, guys, can't you give me like some 30 minutes of quiet time? But it's good. Like, like that's why we do dinner eight, so that we can get to know one another, that you that you bond with another. It's, it's, why are we going to storm baseball? Well, it's so that we all get together and spend time with one another. Because unless you have that relationship, then you're not growing a relationship so that when things go bad, that you can speak into each other's lives, that you can pray for one another. Like prayer is one of the most intimate things that two people can do with one another that you go before the living God and you ask for help. It's a two-way street. I think of Romans 1, 11 through 12. For I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you. That's, that's what we're talking about. I've gone long enough. Let's pray. Father, we do worship you. Father, as Psalm 95 opened up with those just wonderful words, the, the call to worship, the call to examine 
who you are. You're greater than anything that we could possibly imagine. You're mightier than all things. You're the creator of all things. You're the sustainer of all things. You're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our gratitude. And Father, we come before you today asking that you would help us with the condition of our hearts. Our hearts have a propensity to get hardened. Father, you tell us to take care of our spiritual condition, that we would cultivate the condition of our heart. I can't speak for everyone here, but but that's a difficult task. And so, Lord, I pray by your spirit you would help each one of us to honestly esteem the condition of our heart, that we would subject ourselves to you so that we could do that very thing. Lord, help us to be a community of, 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 of Christians, followers of Christ that are truly, genuinely committed to one another, that we are here to encourage one another. Guard us from legalism. Guard us from things that lead us astray. May we grow in grace. We love you, Lord. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.